You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. We deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. At the end of the cast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABANatSec, or on our Facebook page. And just a note that on November 1st and 2nd, the Standing Committee will be hosting the 28th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law CLE Conference. To find out more about this conference and register, visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. This week, we're going to listen to audio from a panel that the Standing Committee on Law and National Security hosted at the ABA Annual Meeting in Chicago on August 4th. The panel is titled Attacks on Our Institutions of Democracy, The Role of the Judicial System, and features previous guests on the podcast, Suzanne Spaulding, a senior advisor at CSIS and the former undersecretary of the National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security, and Elizabeth Rinskoff-Parker, who is the former dean of the University of the Pacific McGeorge Law School, former general counsel of both the CIA and the NSA, and the former executive director of the California State Bar System. Also featured on this panel is Judge Margaret Sweeney of the United States Court of Federal Claims. This cast features a longer outtake than usual, but to hear the full panel, including the Q&A session, please visit our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, where you can watch a video of the entire proceeding. Well, we start with the uh, alarming premise that uh, our American democracy is under attack. And uh, we saw as recently as this week, right, at, that our national security leaders, from the director of national intelligence to the director of NSA uh, to the uh, director of FBI and the secretary of homeland security, making it very clear that Uh, Russia is engaged in a campaign that goes well beyond our elections. This is not just about elections. But um, as was, they reinforced the message that was first put out in January of 2017 by the Director of National Intelligence on behalf of the intelligence community that uh, Russian efforts to influence the 2016 U.S. presidential election represent the most recent expression of Moscow's long-standing desire to undermine the U.S.-led liberal democratic order. Uh, in that assessment, they said that Russia's goals were to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process. And that includes democratic institutions that go well beyond uh, the elections. And uh, clearly, what uh, one of the most appealing elements of our democracy is this reality of an independent and impartial judiciary uh, and, and justice system. And that is something that is uh, not present in Russia. And part of Putin's objective here is to undermine the appeal of democracy, not just 
uh, in the United States to undermine our faith and confidence in our democratic process, but I think first and foremost for his own population, uh, and, but also around the world where we compete for influence. And so what when I left the Department of Homeland Security, where I was the undersecretary responsible for helping to safeguard our election infrastructure, but cybersecurity and critical infrastructure uh, broadly, uh, was to think about, okay, if this was really just part of a long-term campaign to undermine democracy, and one of the most appealing elements of that that is equally dependent upon public trust and confidence to give it meaning, and uh, that would be the judicial system. So we started looking, and I talked to Harvey and uh, about the standing committee, uh, you know, collaborating on this. And so we started looking for evidence. And, what, and again, remember what we saw in the run-up to the elections, because what we see them do elsewhere, we'll see again. And what we've seen them do in other countries, we'll see here. So we saw doxing, breaking in, hacking in, stealing emails, uh, that they think might be embarrassing or destabilizing and, and, and publishing, publishing those. Uh, we saw uh, the uh, information operations, right, which writ large. We saw cyber attacks on uh, cyber efforts to gain access to voter registration databases for, we think, to cause disruption, but uh, also to undermine, again, to undermine public confidence in the fairness of the system. So how might you see those things applied if your objective was to undermine public trust and confidence in the U.S. judicial system? And as we started looking, you, you begin to see the narrative emerge. We see what we have seen in other contexts where Russia exploits division and vulnerabilities of our own making. Right? They pick up on and add fuel to the flames of divisive issues, particularly around immigration, around, around issues of racial justice, injustice, uh, and they fan the flames of those issues. So we have seen that in those contexts in which they are doing that, uh, those issues can bump up against the courts, and it has implications for public confidence and trust in the courts. We also see statements coming out that take advantage of existing narratives like all judges are politicians who wear robes. So I want to tell a couple stories just to sort of give you a sense of what we're seeing out there. In January of 2016, uh, a German prosecutor came under tremendous uh, fire for failing to prosecute uh, refugees, allegations that a young girl of Russian origin had been abducted by refugees and raped. The authorities, this is called the Lisa case, the authorities very quickly determined that the allegations were completely untrue. She'd spent the night with a friend and made this up so as not to anger her parents. Nevertheless, social media grabbed hold of this and a uh, firestorm that led to protests in the street, uh, massive demonstrations, and the foreign minister of Russia accusing German authorities and the courts of covering up the crime because, in order to uh, not undermine their refugee policies, their soft on, on refugees uh, policies. 
So again, that narrative that courts are really just another organ of the state doing the state's bidding, not independent and impartial. Fast forward six months, now we're in Twin Falls, Idaho, where again a prosecutor is under tremendous pressure uh, for failing to vigorously prosecute what turned out to be a wildly exaggerated allegations that a young girl had been raped at knife point by Syrian refugees. There were no Syrian, as the authorities looked into it, there were no Syrian refugees, there was no knife point, uh, it's not at all clear uh, that there was a rape. There were three young people in a basement of a building, and uh, the two young men were indeed taken into custody and put through the system. But here again, huge social media uproar. Why aren't you going after the Syrian refugees? Uh, Russia, we now know that this is one of the first places that Russia tried to turn out people for an in-person rally. They made up a fake group called Secure Borders. They advertised for this rally saying that uh, we need to stand up for our rights against, you know, that refugees and and immigrants are being protected over, over American citizens. And these cases are not being brought because officials are soft on these uh, immigration policies. Very reminiscent, obviously, of what, what had happened in Germany. Ultimately, the judge's picture is posted online with a big red arrow pointing to the judge's head and the words corrupt judge. Um, his home address and phone number were published. Uh, so, again, an indication of how uh, leaning into these divisive issues uh, can be used to undermine public confidence in the courts. Putin himself uh, has indicated that the courts are in his sights. When we seized some diplomatic facilities, Putin gave a press conference, Russian diplomatic facilities, that this was a violation of Russia's property rights and that he had asked his envoy to sue in U.S. courts. And And then his next sentence was, then we'll see how effective this much lauded American judicial system is. More recently, with the indictment of the uh, Russians who were uh, named and and found to have been involved in the interference in the elections, of course, the Russian foreign ministry puts out a statement denying it all and saying how unfortunate it is that uh, once again we see these criminal cases being brought for political purposes, to advance political objectives. Um, RT and Sputnik, two propaganda outlets of Russia, RT... used to be Russia Today. They shortened it to RT in the hopes that maybe no one would get the connection to Russia. (laughs) (coughs) Clever. Uh, They have a a weekly program. It's called America's Lawyer, hosted by a trial attorney in Pensacola, Florida. And its unrelenting narrative is characterized by, uh, by this opening To say that the justice system in the United States is broken would be a gross understatement. Corporations and corrupt politicians have taken control, turning the once impartial judiciary into a tool for the elite to use for their own gain. That is the unrelenting theme of this program. Sputnik has a similar program called Loud and Clear that has a feature called Criminal Injustice. So you get my you get my my theme here. Um, the folks who follow uh, Russian affiliated social media accounts, there's a, 
great website called Hamilton 68, if you're interested in this. It's a dashboard on a, on a real-time, near real-time basis of what's being carried by 600 or so Russian-affiliated social media accounts. Um, and, uh, and they have, I went and talked with them and said, you know, I'd like you to go back and look at what you've seen and tell me uh, if you begin to see this emerge from all the noise. And sure enough, um, what they found was, an, uh, again, a sustained campaign uh, to undermine public confidence in the justice system, going after prosecutors, going after uh, FBI and DOJ, Mueller and Comey, the whole notion of the rule of law. And at the end of the day, we know that part of what Putin has done to his own population is to, is to cause them to give up on the notion of truth. They're so bombarded with mistruths and changes in direction, et cetera, that they, they, they have despaired at the notion that they can determine what the truth is and that there is objective truth out there. And that is part of what they're trying to do here. And if you think about the role of the courts as arbiters of fact, as finders of the truth, um, if you really are at danger of go entering into a post-truth world, what is the you know what happens to the legitimacy and the relevance of the courts? So that's the nature of the threat that we saw and that we see um, uh, ongoing uh, every day, and why we set up this project to do a couple things to improve cybersecurity in the courts, so that cyber-enabled uh, means are uh, much harder to do, uh, and also then to detect, deter, and help the public understand the information operations piece and build public resilience against that kind of messaging. Thank you, Sam. Uh, Judge Sweeney, you are representing the judiciary today. I and am. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. And we really appreciate it. And we thought it'd be helpful for you to lay out your perspective about how you see this vulnerability issue of technology in the courts. Thank you very much, Harvey. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, thanks to all of you for coming because we need to get this message out. And I particularly want to thank um, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security and all my fellow panelists because they have been involved in ongoing discussions with other organizations and associations to draw attention to the defense of the judiciary. And that's happening in two different ways, in defending the judiciary's reputation and also the branding of the uh, judiciary. And what I mean um, by the, the reputation, if a judge is under attack or, or the uh, certain courts or a, a group of judges or the judiciary as a whole comes under attack, organizations need to come forward to explain what the truth of various situations are. This is not to say that individual judges cannot be su uh, subject of criticism or that the judiciary should never be criticized. We're not in any way suggesting lim limiting freedom of speech or freedom of the press, but judges can't defend themselves. If things are written about them, things are, appear on social media, it's very dangerous that we cannot speak up and say that's completely untrue. It's perfectly fine to disagree with the outcome of a judge's decision. That's what uh, appellate courts are for. <laughs> um, and that's perfectly fine. But it's a totally different perspective. It's a totally different train of attack when misinformation 
warfare campaigns or laws launched against judges and the courts because, as we all know, I don't have to tell this audience, one of the three pillars of our democracy is the judiciary. And if these attacks go unchecked, there's going to be tremendous undermining of democracy. People will not have confidence in the courts. People will be perhaps reluctant to even go to the court. Or when they hear about various interpretations of the law from, a, from the judiciary at large, they'll naturally assume it's corrupt because our society as a whole is corrupt. So it's, it's very disturbing to know that there are programs that are designed, that are state-sponsored. There's no question about it. They are state-sponsored. And their mission is to bring down this country. It's to erode public confidence. It's to erode, it's to erode public confidence that people abroad have in this country and in our institutions. And that's why we rely and we thank you for all that you're doing. Um, we also have problems uh, or the judiciary uh, encounters hacking, um, not just from foreign powers, although that is a great um, source of attacks, um, cyber, cyber attacks. Um, we also have um, individuals that try to hack into our systems because they're entrepreneurs. What they want to do is sell the information that they are able to um, siphon off or out of judicial databases onto the dark market, onto the dark web. They want to know how a decision is going to come out. And by knowing, in a particularly important case, by knowing that, they'll know whether to either sell stock in that company, buy stock in that company, or make other arrangements. It could be a competitor that wants that information. The courts file many uh, pleadings or exhibits um, under uh, secure lock, uh, using secure methodologies so that they're under seal and they're not accessible to the general public, only by those with privileged access. And there's, the court's databases contain lots of proprietary information that competitors want, that foreign governments want. Um, many foreign governments rely on theft as their R&D. Why, why pay te- you know, technicians and scientists to develop products and programs and services when they can just steal it from us? That goes on all the time. And we have to be vigilant about stopping people, countries, from trying to infiltrate our systems. In addition, there are people who are um, hackers who are just simply discontent with our government. And they either buy into the narrative that Suzanne has outlined, and, or they have a particular agenda. And now I want to go back a few years to say uh, 2013, when a young hacker by the name of Aaron Schwartz committed suicide, um, he was arrested for his hacking activities, and he was going to be prosecuted, and he feared going to jail. So the young man took his own life. Anonymous, which is a group of hackers, many of these hackers, and there are, we don't know how many there are, 
thousands, tens of thousands. Members of Anonymous don't even know who one another are. But what they did was they attacked the U.S. Sentencing Committee's website by bringing it down, extracting very sensitive encrypted data, and then replacing the web page with an asteroids game that if you tried to play the game, what would come up would be a picture of Mr. Schwartz with the caption, Rest in Peace. There was a second attack by Anonymous on the Sentencing Commission. Again, it brought down the web page. So I'll give a plug right now. Make sure your your systems are patched. Um, That's a great way for hackers to to penetrate your your, um, data entry points. And um, they put up a, a cyber warfare statement against the federal government, and it also named several judges. In addition, courts have seen very disturbing intrusions in terms of attacks on specific judge. In one particular court, the public-facing website was brought down and replaced with a picture of a judge of that court hanging from the end of a noose. That's pretty disturbing. In addition, I think um, we're all aware of the 2016 hacking of the uh, databases um, at OPM that resulted in a particular foreign power as well as others um, gaining the personal information of over 21.5 million people. Now that number I find staggering and that is just gold for not only foreign powers, but again, for hackers to sell that information on the web and making the life of at least 21 and a half million people um, pretty precarious, <coughs> having their identity stolen, having to deal with um, uh, the, the loss of their identity and identity theft, and wondering, should I ever apply to work for the federal government? <coughs> How, why, how, can, how can my government not protect me? Well, that's exactly what these foreign powers and other hackers wish to obtain. In addition, the judiciary has seen attacks with, um, on websites with the object of, attain, of obtaining not only judiciary employee information, again, sort of the typical thing that you saw at OPM with names, addresses, banking information, social security numbers, but also to um, get the decision of a, of a judge and deface it or alter it, change the data around. Will the judge notice it before it goes out for publication if it's the penultimate draft? It's so important that the judiciary remain vigilant. And I, I um, sit on the Judicial Conferences Committee on Information Technology, and I'm the chair of the Cybersecurity Committee. And I can assure you that the judiciary's top administrative priority is cybersecurity. We look for the very best tools that are available to keep us current, secure, and safe 
because we know the only way that the public will remain confident in us is if we're protecting the data. If we're compromised, how can they trust us? Um, let me give you two recent, uh, well, fairly recent examples um, from a, a, a cyber intrusion at a court. Um, an IT manager's credentials were compromised by what was then called the heart bleed bug. It wasn't It's not a virus. It's when two computers talk to one another, and I'm not a technical person, so bear with me. It's when two computers talk with one another. Every maybe 30 minutes or so, one computer will talk to the other, and it's called a heartbeat that's sent. And with the heartbeat bleed bug, the... um, can be a mouthful sometimes. The... um, (laughs) Well, the offending computer will be sending out requests for information and will be extracting more than it was receiving the last time. It will manage to infiltrate um, uh, courts and eventually, or any wherever this is accomplished, and it will inf- infiltrate one or several computers. And what will happen is a snapshot of whatever is on that computer will be sent back In this case, we know it was China. So at a particular court location, and there are over 330 court units, to give you some idea, Um, so it's a pretty big vineyard that we we have to weed and tend and and make sure that that things are current. Um, The same snapshot was sent back every 30 minutes to China. Fortunately, uh, with the, you know, the AO called the IT security manager and said, your credentials are being used to send information back to China. And after he picked himself up on the floor, I'm sure it was one of those Lady of Shalat moments, you know, the doom has come upon me. Um, he was able to pinpoint which computer. Thankfully, it was in a server room. It was never used. And so um, the PRC got one single shot 30 times for several weeks. And it was what you all see when you turn on your computer, press control alt delete to access this computer. So everyone exhaled, breathed a very deep sigh of relief, and um, the word, talk about a clarion call, every court unit was notified for every single judiciary employee to change the password. In addition, pivoting back to Russia for a minute, I'm sure you're all aware of the law that went into effect in December of last year that prohibited the U.S. the U.S. government's use, you know, government employees' use of the Kapersky mm-hmm. antivirus <laughs> program. Um, well, there were a number of court employees. Uh, actually, when you consider how large the judiciary is, and I'm referring at this point to the federal judiciary. Um, There were 41 employees throughout the United States that had home computers that when they bought them from Costco or Best Buy or wherever, it was already loaded with Kapersky antivirus. So those computers were already compromised, and the employees didn't know it. And somehow they either were tone deaf, um, they didn't want to pay $99, 
<laughs> to get a new antivirus system, or they didn't realize their local IT department would install one at no charge that was not corrupted. But in any, in any event, they were using their valid login credentials to access our data communications network, and that allowed Russia to access judiciary information. Fortunately, it was shut down as, as soon as the, we refer to it as the SOC. It's located in Washington, D.C. at the Administrative Office of Courts, and they're sort of our lifeguards. Um, they're overlooking all court units, and when something comes up on one of the SOC computers, they immediately contact the local court unit. Now, of course, all local court units, as well as the, the SOC, have firewalls. But that's just not good enough to keep out malware because how are people transmitting information these days? Most of the time, it's encrypted data. So encrypted data, if not examined, will just traverse, come into the data center, and then, if opened, infect a court's computer system. I think we had a Unfortunately, when I say a good example, um, it's a good example, but it's a horrifying effect of um, ransomware being added to the computer systems of of a hospital system called MedStar back in the Washington, D.C. and Maryland areas. And what happened, um, several employees received emails from what would be a trusted source, a superior a friend, a family member, and it contained an attachment. As soon as those employees clicked on the attachment, the ransomware worked its way into the system, and eventually all those computers were ground to a halt. Doctors couldn't perform surgeries. There were no therapies that could be administered. Patient appointments had to be canceled. I happened to be at Georgetown on the day this happened because my husband was undergoing chemo and he couldn't receive his treatment that day. Can you imagine if one of your family members, someone, you know, one of your loved ones is about to undergo, say, a heart surgery, they're fighting for their life, and the doctors can't access any of the data to perform the surgery? because all the computer systems are ground to a halt. As it turns out, the, a number of the hospitals paid, it's called ransomware for a reason, they paid ransom to the two young, I think it was two young brothers in one of the stands mm-hmm. in one of the um, old Soviet satellite countries. And, um, and as I understand it, it was a rather, I mean, a penny is too much, but... Um, I believe they paid something like thirty-seven thousand mm-hmm. dollars to get their computer systems um, back and under their control. So again, fortunately, the uh, the judiciary has not been subject to sh- uh, to a shakedown <laughs> by any foreign power. Yes, absolutely right. But um, we remain vigilant by. The, the firewalls um, at, at every um, court data point entryway through having the best type of patching system, um, malware, malware detection, 
um, using the um, de-encryption of encrypted traffic to make sure there are no what we refer to as signatures of malware that you can know at a glance that whatever is trying to or traversing the um, web to try to get into our system is in fact problematic. In addition, we have court self-assessments every year. We have mandatory examinations of of, um, security practices at every court. Um, That happens every several years. Well, the self-audit is every year. And in addition, there are red team testing where um, friendly um, cyber attackers um, that are hired by the judiciary will see if they can penetrate the judiciary systems and therefore um, identify vulnerabilities and have those remediated immediately. But um, I guess since I've been involved with cybersecurity at at the courts, the one thing that I learned um, from the very beginning, and it remains true, is that machines fight machines best. Hmm. And secondly, if the judiciary wants to maintain the public trust, it has to be vigilant in maintaining and protecting data because it's not our data, it's the public's data. So thank you for your attention. And my, again, thank you to Harvey, Suzanne, and Elizabeth for all their help in backstopping us. Thank, thank you, you so much. So I've been a little bit remiss in uh, introducing Elizabeth because she wears many hats. <laughs> and one of the hats, which is part of the group that has assisted CSIS and the ABA, is the MITRE Corporation, where she is a trustee. So MITRE's also been involved, and MITRE for many years has had a long-term program working with the courts. But we're going to ask her to wear her other hat today, or chapeau. And this is her role when she was the chief executive officer of the State Bar of California. So she has her fingers on a state perspective and state court perspective. So with Elizabeth, could you choose share some of your thoughts about this judicial Well, thank you, Harvey. And, and you're right. That is the hat I intend to wear and also uh, the hat that I had for a decade as the dean of a California law school. Um, But let me begin with my own question for the audience. How many of you uh, attended this morning's session, the cyber wake-up session? All right. For those of you who did not, um, let me just distill what was said there, I think, by three things. They talked about the need to be aware of the threat, to be aware of vulnerabilities, and to respond to the inevitable consequences. And I think that triad, threat, vulnerability, and consequences, is exactly the way to think about this program. So in Suzanne's remarks, you heard about the threat, which we believe is real and growing and will not, will not go away. The judge has talked about vulnerabilities. Um, I'd like to talk about consequences. And in talking about consequences, let me begin by saying there will be consequences. No matter how good the security, there will be breaches. Um, it's just simply an inevitability. And so one of the things you heard this morning is we need to be in a position to respond to those inevitable consequences when they occur. And how will we do that? Well, when it comes to the courts, quite obviously, as the judge has made clear, and you would know too, we have a problem. 
we don't look to our judges to defend themselves. And so as the dean of a law school, I was surprised to realize that I had become the action arm of the judiciary. It was the, the law schools, it was the bar associations that really needed to be prepared to respond. But response by those groups is important, but it's not sufficient because whom are they talking to? Well, they're talking to the public. That's who ultimately you want to reassure. And so this is where my comments then begin to take a focus. When I was thinking about how I might uh, title my portion of the session, I thought I might um, be smart-alecky and talk about naming it what is to be done, copying, you may remember, the title of the notorious pamphlet that V.I. Lenin came out with uh, back at the Revolution in 1917. And then I thought, no, maybe it's the Pogo comment, we've met the enemy and he's us. Frankly, I think Pogo wins in my view. And here's why. So let me begin with, if you'll just indulge me, with a little bit of a story. When I became um, the dean of this California law school, um, and then subsequently as the executive director of the state bar, one of the opportunities that surprised me and was thrust upon me was developing what we ultimately called an educational pipeline initiative that might help to identify those students who were least likely to move into a legal career, diverse, uh, disadvantaged folks, and see if we couldn't develop programs that would interest them in law at a much earlier state so that they stage in their career, so that they would become prepared and interested and create then a much more diverse and inclusive legal uh, system, which we felt was necessary. After all, if it doesn't work for all, it doesn't work for any. Now, what I learned in this process has informed my reaction to the problem, the fundamental problem that I think we have today in countering this Russian influence program, which I believe will grow. And let me pause here and just make a parenthetical. Uh, you may be interested to know that the California legal system is larger than the federal system, if you consider the number of judges. Well, think about the size, then, of the state system that I'm talking about. Um, this is going to have to be something that is really looked at seriously across a broad uh, spectrum. It's not just the federal judiciary, which I would hope is, is absolutely the very best. I suspect it is in its protective measures. What about those other systems? Well, as we got going in what I have come to describe as the Education Pipeline Initiative, essentially a program that was really steroid, pardon me, civics on steroids, here's what I learned. It turns out that we don't have a very well-informed uh, citizenry. And for me, <laughs> this was a surprise. I was asked You're to serve... You're on the record here, so yeah. yes, okay. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Right. I was asked to serve on something that originally was named a Commission for an Independent Judiciary, an initiative that then Chief Justice George of the California Supreme Court had put together, hoping to counter what he saw as potentially a pernicious growth in electing and politicizing the judiciary, and he felt it might be coming towards California. Well, polling taught him and his staff that he needed to rename the commission so he called it a commission for an impartial judiciary. Why? Because independent, these polls taught us, 
was interpreted by those being uh, responsive as a runaway judiciary, uh, perhaps a judiciary out of control. They didn't associate independent with the independence of the three branches. This was apparently unknown. That was, for me, a huge wake-up call and a big surprise. Um, it once again went back to my little education pipeline initiative, which I thought, you know, civics really is very important. It's important not just because we want to bring more of our uh, disadvantaged citizens into that pipeline to become a part of our legal system, but because everybody needs it. Now, I'm going to, in a minute, turn to some of the negatives I learned in the work that I did both as a dean and then subsequently with the bar on this little pipeline initiative, which was my vehicle to learn about the state of civics education in the United States. But before I do, I don't want to be completely negative. The little education pipeline initiative did have some notable successes. So let's just start with a bit of feel-good news. Um, we were able to create one small local uh, law-themed public charter high school, which graduates and has continued to do so in the last decade, 100% of its very disadvantaged, highly diverse students, and send them on to college. In 2011, it was honored as a California Distinguished School. It has three times received the top award for civics from our Chief Justice, and it now is expanded to a full K-12 through curriculum. So we should feel good about that. Uh, we also set in motion similar activities in a number of other states, and then the California State Bar uh, became active in the area and was able to reach out to state government and persuade the Department of Education through some legislative changes that a partnership program that sought to bring education and professional opportunities together should include legal topics as well. And out of that, we were able to establish 17 law academies that work with our community colleges and six law schools and a new program called California All. I think Ohio has done something similar. So, you know, we should pat ourselves on the back. That was great. But frankly, not enough. What these modest efforts taught me was that, frankly, we have a total dearth of civics understanding in this country and apparently little support for changing that. So above, among the problems that I identified in the course of this work, first, we could find no funding support to take the kind of program I've described, which would bring low-income to disadvantaged kids into a curriculum that would begin early, really as early as the fifth grade, and move them straight through high school and then on into college and beyond and give them the grounding they needed to be competitive if they wanted to go to law school. No support for that. Well, why not? Speaking with one of the principal educational uh, programmers, or I should say program consultants at California's largest foundation, the Irvine Foundation, I got this answer. Quote, I do not believe there is a gold standard curriculum for what you were trying to do. But if there were, we don't have the teacher corps who could deliver it. We don't have the teacher corps who could deliver it. I was shocked. I came away and I thought about what did Ann Stanton mean? 
what she meant was, it's been so long since we've taught civics in a serious way in our schools that we don't have teachers today who have the educational grounding they need to deliver this kind of program. Now, I haven't done a comprehensive look, but I think it's also true that we don't have much of this kind of education in our teacher education programs either. So I think she was probably right. Other foundations responded to our idea of a, uh, I call it then again, the, the civic steroids program for disadvantaged students this way. They said, why do we need more lawyers? One. Two, you're rich lawyers. Do it yourself. Three, we didn't invent it. Not invented here. And so again and again, the answer was no funding for this kind of a national initiative. What we did find, however, was that there was local support. And so we took our national program, as you've heard, and we pushed it into a local focus. But as we did that, we learned some other things. There was a lot of local awareness, particularly, I must say, among our judicial colleagues. They got it before anybody else, that there was a real problem. But therein, I think, we discovered another problem. These volunteer efforts were good diagnoses of the lack of civics education, but I think it was a diagnosis, not a solution. What we found was that programs were heavily dependent on the passion of volunteer leadership, uh, time and experience, and when those continued, they would be able to offer something. But such programs are always at risk of their champions going away for whatever reason, dying, losing interest, going on to something else. I think you can all point to programs that you've seen, this kind of dependency on a volunteer effort and suddenly just dissipate when that leadership is no longer there. So they were really opportunistic add-ons to regular instructional programs, not integrated seriously into curricula or treated as seriously as we believe they required. They were not systematic, and they were not sustainable. And indeed, one judge friend commented, someone who's been deeply involved in all of this, that they were really Band-Aids rather than a serious part of the curriculum, a two-day, as he put it, drive-by to introduce students to as much as you could give them in two days on our legal system. So in short, not a solution, but a good diagnosis. The other thing we learned in studying these programs was that there was another problem. Our law schools were absent. They simply weren't interested or involved in education at secondary levels. I could only find a very small number, a handful, of law professors who focused on education, law, and policy. And those who did tended to focus on higher education. So despite the size and importance of education, there's really been little interest in education law civics, if you will, other than in the law school curriculum itself. I find this rather surprising because if you look at uh, our education system as a major industry, is there a bigger regulated industry? Perhaps healthcare would be an example. There are also jobs in this sector that call out for legal training, but for some reason this seems to have been missed. In any event, uh, certainly the law schools did not seem to be a leading force for change here. Another thing I learned, and this was I suppose not surprising to those who are professional educators, as I am not, but there's an intellectual hierarchy within educational programs generally. The highest SAT scores go to one group of schools, the lowest to another. Uh, the traditional prestige and economic of law is simply not shared 
by schools <coughs> of education. And this is indicated by both the programmatic content and the way we treat those graduates from both fields. So again, uh, real problems, and I suppose a related problem I should allude to, is the isolation within various components of our K-20 through educational system, one not talking to the other. And here, I'll say that law schools lose out. Law professors have had no preparation in teaching, yet in, in stepping into the podium role, they confront increasingly a much different population than maybe ones that they studied law with. And they need to take advantage then of some of what's been going on in, in schools of education as, they, as, pardon me, as they've developed really remarkable learning theory and the science of how you teach a much broader uh, cross-section of people. So enough then said about the audience that needs to be talked to we're going to have to, in my judgment, inform that audience and begin to put together systems that will ensure that there is an informed electorate so that when we confront the kinds of attacks which I believe are surely going to come, those of us who are in a position to defend the judiciary, that would be uh, lawyers, that would be uh, bar associations and so on, are speaking to people who will understand what we are talking about. Now, let me then say that the vulnerabilities in state systems, I believe, are really much greater than they are in the federal system. And I say that for this reason. There are infinite numbers of laws that call out for mischievous uh, manipulation. Let me just use the California example. We have a recall system. In the last, I'll say, 10 years, two judges have been uh, challenge with a recall, one successfully as recently as June, one from those attacking the individual from the left, the other one from the right. In both cases, the judges were following what appeared to be Hornbook law, but a large part of the population didn't like it. And so here's an example of the way in which manipulation easily can occur. California, as you may know, notoriously has a proposition initiative program where Frankly, for a certain amount of money, you can get just about anything put on a ballot. The entire uh, electorate will then vote on. Well, what a great opportunity if you wanted to sow discord and dissension. So perhaps my final thought then, in addition to what you've heard, and that is let's look seriously at how we get civics education back into our educational curriculum. Let's not just talk STEM. Let's talk C-STEM, in my, in my view. But beyond that, I think I have really um, a call to action. We've got to take all of this seriously because without the kind of efforts that deal with both informing the electorate and looking at where our vulnerabilities are and creating the response mechanisms that we look to our bar associations and lawyers to manage, I think we do face an existential crisis an existential crisis in our democracy, which will be vulnerable to the kind of Russian disinformation campaigns designed to undermine a critical institutional component of our democratic system. Well, thank you for that rosy picture, Elizabeth, um, <laughs> of the state of where we're at in education and the call to arms. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. If you enjoyed that panel, please visit our website, AmericanBar.org/NatSecurity, where you can watch the full video 
of the panel from the ABA annual meeting, including the Q&A session with the audience. You can also visit our website for information about the upcoming 28th annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference on November 1st and 2nd in Washington, D.C. Because remember, listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. You should show up. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.